For years, the trailhead nest had been protected by a 10,000-member force. 15% of its adult members were soldiers. A soldier's exoskeleton, twice the size of that of an ordinary worker, is literally heavy armor, thick, tough, and pitted in places for resilience and strength. A pair of spines project backward from the midsection of the body to protect the waist. Spikes protect the neck, and the rear margin of the head is curved forward, forming a helmet. When attacked, the soldier can pull in her legs and antenna and tighten up the segments of her body, turning her entire surface into a shield. The ordinary trailhead workers, while built for labor, were also available for combat. They served as the light infantry, using the swiftness and the agility of their supple bodies to dart in and out of enemy lines, seizing any leg or antenna available and holding on to it until their nestmates could close in and grab another body part. When the adversary was finally pinned and spread-eagled, others piled on to bite, sting, or spray her with poison. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today it's Ants, folks. That's right. This is going to be Ant Wars, Episode 1. Uh, the Antpire Strikes Back, perhaps. I, I'm not <laughs> sure. I haven't worked out the, the full title yet. But uh, uh, yeah, we're going to be taking a, a couple of episodes to look at the wars of the ants. And it seemed uh, ideal that we kick off with a cold reading from the novel Ant Hill, a novel by E.O. Wilson, which came out in 2010. So we were talking about this novel before we got started. It actually got some surprisingly good reviews. I, I was thinking about picking up a copy and, and reading it until I discovered that a significant portion of this novel is about human characters. And I, I was hoping with E.O. Wilson, you know, especially in the past, we've talked about that video where he like plunges his hand into a nest of fire ants and beams with the most, uh, uh, the most radiant joy as the ants all bite and sting him at the same time. Uh, I was hoping it would be all about ants, because if anybody could do ants as compelling central characters, I would think it would be E.O. Wilson. Yeah, I think I was looking at one review of it that was glowing uh, that said that there are about 70 pages in the novel that only E.O. Wilson could have written. Um, and uh, and I think this gives everyone a little taste of that. And and when we say, you know, surprisingly, uh, you know, great reviews. You know, it's obviously E.O. Wilson is a is a tremendous author, uh, but generally he is he is associated with with nonfiction, right? Uh, convey, oftentimes conveying science very effectively um, to a general audience. But of course, fiction is a, a slightly different scenario. So you might expect even a very talented nonfiction writer, uh, you know, to, to 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 perhaps stumble a bit in trying to create a, a, a work of fiction like this. Oh, totally. That's what I mean. I didn't mean like E.O. Wilson's a dummy. I just meant that usually when somebody who's not primarily a fiction writer is like, yeah, I'll do a novel. It, it's, it's not always great. Well, you know, the main the main example that always comes to my mind uh, is uh, or would be the, the Tech Wars novels uh, that were <laughs> attributed to William Shatner that uh, though I understand it was um, uh, more of a ghostwriting scenario right. that was in place. There was some uh, some spiritual composition involved. <laughs> but but I have to say it was not the Tech Wars that inspired uh, inspired me to, to seek this topic out uh, this week, but rather the Clone Wars. 
uh, and uh, and also the miniature board gaming in general. So uh, my son and I recently ordered uh, a copy of Fantasy Flight Star Wars Legion miniature game, which is a miniature um, war game in the tradition of things like say Warhammer, Warhammer 40,000 and then the older um the the older like Napoleonic um war games of of old uh, the, the kind of thing that has been the pastime of people such as HG Wells who wrote a uh, essentially a rule book for such miniature gaming and then uh, was also a a favorite pastime of Peter Cushing Right. You recently shared this video with me where Cushing is painting his little uh, figurines. I guess it's Napoleonic Wars or, or some similar temporal event uh, where all these little uniformed figures, he's like posing them around barns and stuff that he's got on his floor. I think it was a video from the from the 1950s that was documented. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was 1950s, and yeah, he's really getting into it. He has a whole whole hobby set up, and yeah, then he's laying them out on the floor, getting them into into position. Um, you know, very very historical uh, based for sure. Uh, but yeah, just thinking about this sort of thing, thinking about miniature gaming in general, and thinking about the Clone Wars, uh, where you have uh, on one side a bunch of uh, uh, you know uh, genetically um, uh, identical warriors going up against uh, you know uh, armored robotic hordes. I, I couldn't help but think of the ants, the wars of the ants. You know, it's amazing how much hymenopteran conflict we can miss because you're just going about your business. Maybe you're doing something in your yard. You're hanging out uh, out in the sun or in the hammock or something, and you don't even realize that there is literally a battle raging just a couple of feet from you around the blades of grass. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, the the ants are are waging their wars. They're defending their territories, um, and and we're talking about against other ants. They're not even talking about their their various struggles um, uh, against other species. And it's everywhere. We tend not to even think about our, our ants unless they actually invade our homes, and then then we get hot and bothered about it. But I imagine the most crucial question we have to consider before we proceed is, can we really consider the conflict we see between ant species, between different ant colonies, as warfare, more or less, in the human sense of the word? Well, I mean, in one sense, you could say maybe pedantically and obviously no, because it it would necessarily fail to capture like the full range of of human value and culture and, and passion that accompanies conflict between humans. But... On the other hand, I think you could absolutely probably like see some parallels in terms of like pure resource dynamics. Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit. Uh, Sometimes you see war defined as a declared armed hostile conflict. And of course, the idea of ants actually declaring war on another group of ants is is ridiculous because you're getting into declarations of war. That's a human political reality. And as Dr. Brundle would probably remind us, insects are rather short on politics. I mean, I think that 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 fails to capture even a lot of actual war in the human context, where a lot of wars are not called wars by the people carrying them out. Right. Uh, Another issue, too, is if we're talking about an armed hostile conflict, well, ants don't actually take up arms in the human sense. And, of course, they don't have to because ants have a number of biological weapons and chemical weapons at their disposal that make uh, make such tool use unnecessary. And, of course, we'll be running through some examples of of these uh, bio weapons as we proceed through these episodes. However, we do tend to discuss these conflicts between ant colonies, between ant species, as being a a form of war, something that we can think of as war. 
As zoologist and entomologist uh, Sean O'Donnell pointed out on Serious Science, ants engage in, quote, direct aggressive interaction between ants of different colonies. They also engage in such conflict over resources. And as uh, uh, noted uh, ant expert, author of The Human Swarm, tropical biologist Mark W. Moffat has put it, war is, quote, the uh, concentrated engagement of group against group in which both sides risk wholesale destruction. So it's easy to look at other animals, perhaps, and say, well, cats don't wage war, dogs don't wage war. It would be, for instance, kind of ridiculous to say that um, uh, lions are waging war against, uh, say, an antelope, right? Yeah, I, I think that the the analogy would really fall short there. But for the ant, however, it gets a little little, little different. So Moffat contends that the case for ant warfare uh, is, is, is fairly convincing. It's not simply a matter of applying the lens of human civilization to the behavior of animals. What, what they are doing, uh, uh, and we humans have done for thousands of years, are both endeavors that entail, quote, an astonishing array of tactical choices about methods of attack and strategic decisions about when and where to wage war. Now, the parallel there gets especially interesting because while humans would have to make tactical and strategic choices in in organized conflict consciously, you know, they'd have to, like, Mm -hmm. use their brains, look at what's going on and try to judge. I think think we would have to say that the ant carries out its campaigns almost entirely on instinct – like it, the ant doesn't have strategic theories except what it naturally does by instinctive behavior. That's right. Yeah, they they, they more or less simply do, and we'll get into some of the, the details of that here in a second. I, I want to throw in that Douglas J. Imlin, who uh, wrote an excellent book uh, several years ago titled "Animal Weapons," uh, he he uh, uh, weighs in on this uh, and says that okay, for, for the most part, animals do not fight battles or wars, um, and you know, he, basically, he says most of the animal conflict that we see in the wild it's ultimately more of a duel, you know, especially as far as intraspecies contests go, you know, like male fight a male over a potential mate. But ants and termites are are certainly examples of something that could be a standout, you know, in, in which we do see this kind of large scale war with high stakes for both sides. Um, you know, I was thinking a bit about this, too, that, you know, even these other scenarios, lions versus antelopes and all, like at best, we could maybe f- think of that as a skirmish, right? But certainly not a war, not certainly not a war of, uh, uh, of eradication. Yeah, I, I would say that the conflicts between most animals you see in nature are much more individual. They're less group-oriented. They're less organized. Though at the same time, that brings up an interesting question about what you, what really counts as an individual when you're talking about something like a colony of ants. Mm-hmm. Because un, unlike, say, mammals or birds or something, ants are a situation where within the colony, it gets harder to make the case that the individual ant's body is a, is a like independent autonomous agent. And it might be better thought of as like one organ of the, the actual individual, which is the overall colony. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they are so, I mean, they're you social insects and they're so connected that there there is this sense of civilization to them, you know? They are, uh, you know, they're managing resources. In, in some cases, such with the leaf cutter ant, they're engaging in, in agriculture, you know? They, uh, there's this uh, this whole system that is there that, that makes the argument for ant warfare a, a lot more convincing than saying, well, this invasive species is waging a war on the native species. Yeah, I mean, it is out competing it for some resource, but it is not uh, like this tight-knit 
unit. It is not a, like a, a full-blown colony. Now, obviously, nothing humans do is going to be 100% comparable to something in the ant world, but the, the similarities are pretty startling. Uh, I want to read a, a quote from a wonderful 2011 Scientific American article titled Ants and the Art of War, and this is also by Mark W. Moffat. Quote, scientists have long known that certain kinds of ants and termites form tight-knit societies with members numbering in the millions and that these insects engage in complex behaviors. Such practices include traffic control, public health efforts, crop domestication, and perhaps most intriguingly, warfare, the concentrated engagement of group against group in which both sides risk wholesale destruction. Indeed, in these respects and others, we modern humans more closely resemble ants than our closest living relatives, the apes, which live in far our smaller societies. So the main similarity between us and the ants is that we organize ourselves more so than almost any other non-insect animal. Right. Now, biologically, of course, we're much larger vertebrates. We have impressive brains that have enabled us to achieve unequal technological accomplishments, including but not limited to the production of uh, 1954's Them and Bird Eye <laughs> Gordon's 1977 film Empire of the Ants. You don't see the ants themselves making films this good. That's true. Ant cinema is rather lacking, though... I, I don't know if I've seen this Bird Eye Gordon movie or not. Of course, Bird Eye Gordon has come up on the show several times. He's sort of uh, like Mr. a.k.a. Mr. Big. He's the king of the force perspective effect where, you know, you take like a lizard and then you shoot it up <laughs> close against a background and make it say that it's a dinosaur. Yeah, I have to say I haven't seen Empire of the Ants either. Uh, I mainly know it because it's referenced in a Warren Zevon song. But it's a 1977 release. That's that's pretty late in, t in the, the Bird Eye Gordon giant uh, animal rampaging world, I would think. Last time I checked, Bird Eye Gordon was still alive. I think he is. Oh, wow. Still going at it. Yes, he's 97 years old. All right. So obviously ants can't actually top that. You know, they don't have language. They don't have civilization in the sense that we do. Ants, however, uh, they have a different way of going about things. So, for instance, they produce, uh, while we're like a 50-50 male-female species, ants only produce males uh, to serve as short-lived reproductive drones to fertile queens. That's right. I mean, ants are females, basically. Yes. Yeah, the vast majority of the colony consists of sterile females. And while the queen terminology, you know, often we talk about the, the, the queen ant and it brings with it the legacy of human centralized power structures. Ultimately, ants function without a power hierarchy or a permanent leader. They are entirely decentralized. So like you said earlier, combat decisions, they're not made by commanders. You know, you, if, if this was a miniature war game, you wouldn't have like the commander piece that's essential uh, for all of this to take place. No, it's rather a case of swarm intelligence. That is one of the hardest things to keep in mind because there, there's this natural tendency we have to assume that something called the queen is in charge. But yeah, when you're thinking about ants, you have to remember that basically ants are always at war and the queen is never in command. The queen doesn't tell the ants what to do. They are highly motivated to protect the queen, but that's kind of in the same way that like you are highly motivated to protect the most vulnerable parts of your body from injury, right? Like you'd protect your face and stuff like the, the queen is their reproductive chances. And that's why she is protected. Right. Yeah. And she's she is very important. There are some passages in E.O. Wilson's novel where where the, the, the tragedy of the fall of their their queen is is discussed and, and how this is a, a you know, part of the peril that this uh, key group of ants finds themselves in. 
But ultimately, the wars of ants and the wars of humans, they're often fought for the same reasons. Territory, food, ideal dwelling spaces, and even labor. So some ant species do, in fact, employ something that we might think of as slave labor. And we'll come back uh, to that as as we go. But also ants deploy uh, various tactics depending on what is at stake. So, like, you know, not every war is equal to the ant colony. There is... um, there's a fluctuation in, uh, you know, the amount of effort that is put into it, how much uh, ant power is, uh, is put on the line, etc. However, in his book, uh, The Human Swarm, Moffat speaks a little bit more about this, about the basic comparison between human and ant warfare. And he does, he does write that, quote, if nothing else, remember this, comparing identical things is deadly boring. Making comparisons is most fruitful when parallels are noticed between ideas or things or actions ordinarily treated as distinct. Uh, and he discusses this at length in that book, if, if, uh, if, if anyone wants to, to pick that up and explore more. But I think this is also something that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, it's, it's not a one-to-one, but if it were a one-to-one, we probably wouldn't be doing a podcast about it. Right. <laughs> All right, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will talk about ant warriors in classic literature. All right, we're back. So we spent the whole first portion of this episode talking about the idea of comparing ant warfare to human warfare and uh, and to what what extent it's fair, what extent it makes sense. And ultimately, it's irrelevant because we still do it and we've been doing it for a very long time. We've been making that connection between human warfare and ant warfare, perhaps for as long as warriors have had a chance, uh, you know, to pause on the battlefield and look down between their human feet and see a smaller version of their campaigns uh, playing out in the dirt beneath them. For instance, uh, if we look back to the Iliad, uh, the specialized warriors who serve the mighty Achilles are known as the Myrmidons. The ant people is the, the, uh, the literal translation of that. Now, I know according to some mythological sources, the Myrmidons who, who fight with Achilles actually were ants at some point. Isn't that right? They were like transformed into human warriors from their ant origins. Yeah, the the tradition that we see in Ovid's uh, Metamorphosis, for example, is that uh, is that uh, the the gods transformed the ants into humans, uh, and that's why they have these these ant like uh, 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 tendencies. They have this ant like tenacity because they are essentially ants that were made human. Uh, but of course, that was not the actual reality. These were these were human troops, and we have to make some sort of sense of it. Uh, I was reading a, a 2010 paper published in The Classical World by Matthew Sears titled Warrior Ants, Elite Troops in the Iliad. And he points out that massed fighting was probably the norm in the days of Homer, but that in this we get into scholarly conflict over the idea of the hoplite revolution and the pre-hoplite and hoplite warfare. Now, this refers to the Greek use of spears and shields and the phalanx formation. So this is kind of like an ant level um, of, for, of, of cooperation that stands in contrast to mass fighting and the dramatic single combat episodes of the Iliad. So the basic idea here is that the Myrmidons, uh, as well as uh, you know opposing soldiers under uh, Ajax, might be understood as specialized warriors, professional soldiers who use uh, this t- type of tight formation with the shields providing uh, you know absolute support for the unit and uh, and uh, the offensive spears used in a very deliberate manner as a opposed to just a bunch of warriors running out and going at it. 
So uh, definitely keep the phalanx in mind because we'll come back to it and discuss it more when we get into ant tactics a bit. But basically, on both sides of the conflict described in the Iliad, the idea is that you would have had a mix of such professional, highly trained fighters alongside more generalized troops. And of course, this would remain a reality in warfare for a long time. Uh, the professional soldiers fighting alongside the, um, uh, you know, basically common commoners, common men who have just been given arms or have taken up arms in the uh, conquest. Now, in this, Sears goes, in, of course, into a great deal more detail because it is primarily concerned with the ancient world. But he actually poses the question of whether ancient peoples without special lenses would have been able to mark the similarities between human and ant organized conflict. And uh, based on the work of others, he, he says, yeah, you know, we look at the traditions in Africa, Australia and New Guinea uh, in cases where you have people who, are no, who have not used specialized gear to analyze ants and they have long made these comparisons. Quote, the warlike characteristics of ants would have been just as apparent to the eyes of the ancient Greeks as they were to Thoreau and McCook. In short, the description of Achilles' men as ant people may be due to their resemblance in terms of ferocity, uh, tactical ingenuity, unit cohesion, and general bellicosity to these insects as, as observed by the ancients. Okay, so what makes them like ants? It's that they are fierce, that they execute tactics effectively, that they stick together and don't break up into individuals, and that they're very aggressive. Yeah, they're not just uh, yeah. The, the, I think the sticking together and like working as a as a unit is key here. It's not the warfare of sort of you know random battle. It's not the warfare of like the the one hero fighting the other hero at the at the at the walls of Troy. No, it is about tactics and in uniform performance. Exactly, and and that is the advantage of the phalanx. All right. So the next question folks might wonder is how long have ants waged these wars uh, or maybe you haven't you're maybe you're not asking that question but let me go and tell you it's an interesting question with an interesting <laughs> answer tell us the answer robert all right well, well first of all let's let's consider the big picture first we have to really stop and realize that we live in the world of the ant because today the world is home to an estimated 22,000 species of ant and of those only uh, I've seen two different numbers for this. Uh, Twelve thousand five hundred, or perhaps thirteen thousand, have been classified or described. So we're still talking thousands of ant species out there that we just you know don't have a good handle on, maybe don't even have names for. Um, now, according to Ted R. Schultz uh, in a nineteen ninety seven paper on ant ancestors, ants probably account for fifteen to twenty percent of the terrestrial animal biomass today. So that means if you take all of the animals that live on land, and of course this doesn't include plants and stuff like that, but all the animals that live on land, you weigh them all together, this mm -hmm. estimate would say 15 to 20 percent of that is just ants. Yeah, and apparently in areas where they're especially prominent, you could maybe be looking at 25 percent. They because they and they thrive everywhere. Like certainly they're they're uh, you know around the you know the the equatorial belt they're going to be especially active. But they thrive everywhere except Antarctica and uh, as well as the occasional far flung and inhospitable island. Otherwise, the ants just have it all locked down. 
No, that's an amazing estimate. And I do want to be fair. I've been reading around and I, I think there are some disputes about exactly how much biomass ants account for. The, different people have different estimates. Um, but one other estimate I came across that was very interesting, it was quoted in a uh, in a BBC article I was reading about ant biomass. It quotes Francis Ratneeks, who is a professor of apiculture at the University of Sussex. And Ratneeks was trying to address the question of, what weighs more, all the ants or all the humans? <laughs> uh, and there have been different answers to this question. Uh, Ratniks thinks that, well, now probably if you weighed up all the humans, the humans weigh more than the ants. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. Uh, definitely, Ratnik says, if you went back a few thousand years, ants would have far outweighed the humans. But as human populations have grown exponentially, especially in recent centuries, that changed. Ratnik thinks it was probably right around the late 1700s or maybe a little bit before that, that the total weight of humans on Earth suddenly became larger than the total weight of ants. So around the time of American independence, the humans overtook the ants. Wow. Now, here's another figure. And again, uh, these are all estimates. So, you know, yeah. don't, you know, have any particular um, uh, factor like tattooed on your body uh, regarding this. But uh, the, the Field Museum has a wonderful ant page, uh, an ant section of their website. Mm -hmm. And they, they, uh, point, they make the claim that uh, in the tropics, ant biomass outweighs all vertebrate life two to one. Yeah, and that that emphasizes that like the the percentage of ants as biomass is going to be heavily dependent on environment, right? So yeah. around the equatorial regions where they're even more abundant, they might they might massively outweigh humans. I mean, the, the take home is that that basically no matter how often we you know, fail to notice ants in our environment. They are an extremely successful species. By, you know, by some accounts, they are the most successful insect on the planet, which really puts them, uh, in, you know, in consideration for the most successful animal on the planet. Oh, yeah. I mean, insects dominate the animal world and uh, especially, especially the terrestrial animal world. And if ants dominate the insects, I mean, I, I think you could absolutely make a good case there. But the funny thing is you have to imagine, like all other uh, organisms or families of organisms on Earth, there was a time when ants were newcomers on the evolutionary scene. And they, they can't always have had this, this uh, you know, occupied this elevated station. That's right. They were not an overnight success. Uh, ants evolved an estimated 140 to 168 million years ago. So they are ultimately a, a product of the Jurassic but uh, but yeah, they were not an instant hit. Uh, I, I was reading that you know scientists consider that they were probably like a modest success at first. You know, um, ants were doing their thing, but they weren't just blowing up. Mm -hmm. But then something changed. Flowering and fruiting plants evolved an estimated 100 million years ago, and what this did is it transformed the energy economy. Insects suddenly had an well, not suddenly, but insects progressively had an entirely new food source to adapt to, uh, a whole slew of new food sources, and so they did. And ants, which were again probably just a modestly successful life form at best earlier, suddenly exploded, filling out these these various uh, uh, niches in the um, in the ecosystem. They adapted to a host of evolutionary niches and then spread across the two supercontinents of Eurasia and Gondwana. I'm trying to imagine the scene of the first time some ants discovered a fallen fruit. What a sweet oh, moment that would have been. It's almost like an ant Garden of Eden story. 
Yeah. Uh, and and it's like it's just basically like all levels of this new fruit flower uh, economy, like the ants are there to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, and, to, and of course, steadily evolve into these various species that, um, uh, that take advantage of it in various ways. Now, as Schultz points out, we don't have much evidence of ants from the first half of their existence. Not until the mid-Cretaceous do we see their fossil remains. But the evidence we have is pretty incredible. In 1966, E.O. Wilson and others identified the fossil remains of a Cretaceous ant species that was trapped in amber from 92 million years ago. But then there, uh, there, there have been some uh, more recent exciting findings. Uh, ancient Burmese amber from Myanmar gives us even older evidence. I was reading about a 2016 study from Rutgers that was, at the time of that study, dated to 99 million years ago. And according to Philip Barden of the Insect and Evolution Lab and Jessica L. Ware of the Department of Biological Sciences at Rutgers University, Newark, uh, what, uh, uh, what the contents of this chunk of amber show us is a frozen an act of ant warfare. Oh, I see it. They're in a tangle. Yeah, it's it's two ants uh, battling it out, duking it out, trapped forever in this uh, this droplet of amber. Well, I'm imagining a scene where the scientists from Jurassic Park drill into this amber and they use it to clone a dangerous Jurassic fruit. <laughs> Right. They get the stomach content. I don't know if that joke connected. Oh, OK, whatever. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I gave it to your, uh, your cook in there. OK. So uh, the researchers, though, uh, they, they do not go in that direction. What they, what they uh, say is that the ants trapped here belong to early ant lineages that are ultimately distinct from modern ants. So they're not really direct ancestors of modern ants. But in their study, they present evidence that that these ancient ants were social uh, and, and they were, you know, engaging in this kind of, uh, uh, you know, collective conflict. Another bit of amber they point out contains some 21 worker ants. And this is from a time period in which, again, ant fossil evidence is super rare. So they say to get 21 in one blow suggests that they were already, you know, very social working together. So we're looking at a good 100 million years of ant warfare based on this, you know, at least, more or less lining up with the advent of flowering and fruiting plants, with true dominance of the ants being reached some 60 million years ago. Now, other things, of course, evolved as well, uh, including some of their various features. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, some of the ancient ants were rather brutal looking, even more brutal looking than they, they look today. Uh, for instance, there were the hell ants, uh, so named because they feature many characteristics that some might you know, consider unusual or hellish. Um, yeah, I, I found out cause, because you linked it to this one called Lingua Mermex Vladi, and I was looking at that name for a second and I was thinking, wait, Vladi, that, that can't be. <laughs> is it? Is it Vlad? Is it Vlad it the is, Impaler? It is named for Vlad the Impaler because it has this um, unique um, uh, head structure where it has um, – um, uh, it's, it's kind of difficult to describe because it's it has like this paddle-like projection on it, and uh, and X-ray uh, uh, imaging reveals that it was uh, most probably filled with sequestered metals to make it like you know uh, fortified. Wow! Uh, and and that it would have worked in tandem with scythe-like mandibles to pin and potentially puncture soft-bodied prey. So it was. Um, you know, there's this real, you know, bear trap of a, of a head on this thing. I'm looking at images of it now. It, it, it is a brutal spike coming out of the head. 
Yeah. Now, this isn't to say there aren't some really gnarly uh, ant heads around today. We'll get back to some of those uh, later on. But one of the the important take-homes from all of this, and this is something that uh, uh, Sean O'Donnell points out in that that Serious Science uh, article on ant wars, he points out that there's an important shift in the weaponry of ants across time. So long ago, vertebrates were probably the biggest threat to ants. So they were more equipped to deal with them via things like a a powerful sting. But as time passed and they spread across the world, they become more and more successful. Pressure on each other becomes more prevalent. In other words, the endless ant wars become more important for shaping their evolution than the dinosaurs, the birds, and the various mammals that preyed on them. So they used to be they used to have to be more worried about anteaters and armadillos getting in there and, and vacuuming them up with the snout. But over time, their real adversaries become the rival hymenopteran colonies. Exactly. So, you know, ultimately, some ant uh, lineages end up keeping their sting. For example, the bullet ant whose bite ranks as a four. That's the maximum score on Schmidt's sting pain index. Um I was reading a a description. This is by Justin O. Schmidt, uh, the entomologist who came up with this uh, system of measuring uh, the stings. He described it as, quote, pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. Yeah, I've read descriptions of this one as well. The only other thing that I recall being compared to this level of pain with the sting was the tarantula hawk. Yeah, uh, which is a, a type of stinging wasp, but uh, apparently it is just like unimaginable in terms of an insect sting. So that's an example of of ants that have kept their impressive bioweapon. Um, but others lost it entirely. And in some cases, uh, these systems adapted into chemical weapon systems to be used against other ants. And we'll discuss those later on in this uh, this look at ant warfare uh, because they end, it ends up taking a different form because ultimately you're trying to solve different problems at different scales with different enemies. Okay, looks like it's time for us to take a break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. So we've now come to the portion of our our episodes here where we're going to really get into the endless wars of ant kind and the sorts of tactics they employ on the battlefield. And we're probably not going to be able to 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 make it all the way through the this next section without having to stop the episode and come back in part two. But uh, if everything goes according to plan, you're only going to have to wait like a day for the ant wars to continue. Now, the most important fact to drive home first is that naturally there are so many species of ants to consider and that, it, you know, a specific species tactics are then also going to change depending on circumstances. And this is just going to be the nature of war. Uh, Moffat writes that some ants succeed in battle by being on constant offensive. And he draws an interesting comparison here to a 6th century BCE Chinese military general Sun Tzu, who also noted that, quote, rapidity is the essence of war. Right. I mean, so much depends on your ability to not give your opponent time to react effectively. Right. And so like the key a variety of ant to draw a comparison here too, uh, he says, would be the army ants that uh, inhabit uh, warm regions around the world, as well as Asia's marauder ants as prime examples here. Uh, for these ant legions, hundreds or even millions of these warriors will advance in a tight uh, phalanx uh, against their ant adversaries. 
Now, uh, I guess we should try to examine what that would mean for ants as opposed to human warriors. So if you're like an ancient Greek phalanx, this would involve, say, staying together in a tight formation with a wall of shields out in front that sort of like prevents the enemy from reaching you and that you would have trained to be able to move forward and thrust with spears in an organized fashion all all together, minimizing the chances for the enemy to, to break into you while you're pushing into them. Yeah, like basically the difference between like just two hordes like just slamming into each other and having something more more in keeping with really what we see in the tradition of tabletop wargaming. Uh, I, for anyone out here there has actually played any of these games, uh, you can certainly relate. But even if you've looked at one, you get the uh, a sense of order, and I think that's what draws players into it. Right? You have all these these un- these little individual soldiers that are part of different units, and these units are working together. You're having to employ a strategy to deploy them and then move them around and counter the movements of your adversary. And again, for a human, this is done by you know either the godlike figure. That it looms over the gaming table, or it it is the the domain of a commander. Uh, but for the ants, it is it is just that pure swarm intelligence that allows it to take place. Now, uh, Moffat points out for that for for human forces just advancing in in a phalanx. Part of the issue here is you need to know where you're going, right? <laughs> Which I right. guess is obvious. Yeah. Your 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 phalanx needs to have a target or goal or purpose, like cutting its way through the defenses in order to get to the gates of Troy, that sort of thing. But some hands, ants, however, just kind of stick to this roving phalanx tactic, just a roving, decimating horde that uh, that brings to mind. Oh, I'd say. Like the Tyranid, the Tyranid uh, army from 40, uh, Warhammer 40,000 might be an example of this, you know, or various sort of uh, alien bio adversaries in science fiction, where it's just, it's just this massive horde that's working in unity and uh, it's difficult to stop, right? However, human forces, you know, tend not to go this route. They tend to depend on scouts as well to determine where to apply that offensive pressure, where to send your phalanx. And some ants do this as well. Some species will send out a small team of workers to serve as scouts. But this, too, is risky as a risky strategy for ants because a team of scouts, they have to report back to the colony in order for a larger force to then return to obtain that food source that they just scouted. And this is true of human scouts as well in a military scenario. Uh, We might well consider the case of Imperial probe droids, for example, right? And Empire Strikes Back. Mm Mm-hmm. You send out these droids, and yeah, one may discover a rebel base on Hoth, but it actually needs to survive and then and then uh, get word back to the Empire so they can deploy their uh, their ATATs, you, you know, their their massive army. Likewise, the Empire would find this to be a better uh, method. Send out the probe droids because we can't send the ATATs to every world just in case there's a rebel base there. Right. So basically, for the for the Empire, for the ants as well, it basically means that you can depend on, uh, on, you can send out fewer ants and cover a larger area in order to scout out potential targets, uh, in the case of the ants, potential food. Now, I can imagine, though, there are a lot of considerations that must be built into ant behavior based on not wasting resources on like you know, on uh, you know going somewhere where th- there's no longer anything useful to be done, right? Yeah, because there's always the risk that the enemy will move before a larger force can arrive, or that that food source that was scouted out is just not going to be there when your tr- your ant troops roll in. 
And uh, in, in all of this, for the, for the ants, pheromones are key uh, for their uh, communication here. The scouts use this to tag the food source for the larger force to find. So, uh, so the pheromones of the ants here would be the imperial probe droids, uh, kind of message that it sends out. <laughs> yeah, basically, and like the, the pheromones end up serving as communication lines. Moffat writes that, uh, quote, the workers of the army ants or marauder ants can immediately summon any help they require because a slew of assistants are marching directly behind them. The result is maximal shock and awe. So much like in more large scale conflicts, you would have to uh, you'd have to in some way ensure that communication lines are able to remain open for forces to be effective. Exactly. And again, here, you know, the, for the ants, it is, is largely this realm of, of touch and smell. It's the, the, the pheromonal information that's so key. So re- really, I, I feel like this at this point in the podcast, I think we do have a, 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 a pretty you know, broad view of like what's going on. With uh, on with the ant war effort uh, about how to, how troops are distributed, how uh, communication is taking place, and then how uh, offensive pressure can be applied to different areas depending on the need. Oh, but there is so much more ant battle to talk about. Yes, yeah, indeed, there is. Uh, yeah, we we were only able to get through like the first uh, half of our material here because there's a lot more about. Well, just about like the at the individual level, there's a lot more about like the, how like ant jaws work, the power of, of ant bioweapons, et cetera. But then also when you get into the marauder ant specifically, there's been a lot of wonderful uh, work uh, regarding uh, just how they carry out their campaigns and to what extent we can compare uh, these these acts of ant conquest to actual human battles. Well, I can't wait to come back next time and fight on with the Myrmidons. Yeah, more ants, uh, more allusions to uh, Star Wars and various uh, <laughs> uh, tabletop gaming scenarios. Uh, it's going to be going to be a lot of fun. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us, and that is wherever you get your podcast, wherever that happens to be, what strange service you depend on for your podcast uh, delivery. Just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe because that really helps us out in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.